Welcome and welcome back. I'm Esther Shore from the Department of English and the Program in Jewish Studies. Um, before we get started with this afternoon's reading, I just want to invite you all to return at 4.30 to this room uh, where E.L. Doctorow will give his keynote address called Literature as Assimilation. Also, I want to remind you that at 8.30 tonight, there will be an illustrated lecture by Ben Ketchor called Halftone Printing in the Yiddish Press and Other Objects of Idol Worship. Um, ben Ketchor, as you know, is the author of Julius Kniffel, Real Estate Photographer and the Jew of New York, and his cardboard valise and hotel and farm strips have appeared in the foreword. Um, he currently has a major exhibition of his work on at the Jewish Museum in New York through between now and February 10th. Uh, this slideshow lecture expands upon the theme of image worship as presented in his recent book, The Jew of New York, through an analysis of the uses of photographic reproductions in the 20th century Yiddish press and examines the possibility of finding other forms of graphic representation to excite our collective memory of persons and places. Please come and join us tonight. Authors reading from their work. Our first reader today will be Max Apple. Max Apple's comic, bemused, and forbearing voice has been an essential part of the American scene since 1976 when he published his acclaimed Oranging of America and Other Stories. Among his fictional writings are Zip, a novel of the left and right about the Jewish manager of a Puerto Rican boxer named Jesus Goldstein, and The Profiteers, in which Howard Johnson, Marjorie Post, and Walt Disney are all lucky enough to become bona fide Max Apple characters. For his writing, he has received an NEH fellowship and the Harold U. Ribolo Award from Hadassah. Though he taught at Rice University from 1972 until his recent retirement, most readers will associate Max Apple with his hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan, the setting of his marvelous 1994 memoir, Roommates, My Grandfather's Story, followed four years later by I Love Goody, My Grandmother's Story. For decades, his stories have appeared in leading American magazines such as Esquire, Mademoiselle, George Review, and many others. Fiction, Max Apple wrote in the New York Times Book Review, seems sometimes like my ventriloquist dummy, like that part of myself that should get all the best lines. I want to be the straight man so that the very difference between us will be a part of the tension that I crave in each sentence, in every utterance of those wooden lips redeemed from silence because I practiced. We're grateful that he practiced his act and what an act it is. Please join me in welcoming Max Apple. Thank you, Esther, and all of you who organized this. Uh, I'm having a great time just hanging around, listening, and uh, I'm going to read you a brief essay. I'm going to, I've managed over all these years to uh, condense my life into under 15 minutes, my life as a Jewish writer. So I'm going to give you under 15 minutes of my life as a Jewish writer and say 12 minutes. You can do what you want with the last three. And... Uh, you all were laughing so well in the Yiddish panel that I don't think I have to translate. I'm going to read you an essay called, and by essay, I mean it's true, as opposed to a story in which I'm lying. So this is all true, and it's called Max and Motelli. And Motelli, I guess you all know from the laughs. That's my Yiddish name. Can't, can't read. I've reached that age where I have to take them off, so... 
Lives are distorted or occasionally salvaged by questions of identity and people are sometimes consumed by who they are or even worse, who someone else is. Yet this is a struggle I have never felt in my own bones. Identity is someone else's problem. I've always known who we are. In this compact body that seems barely to fulfill the requirements of one, there are in fact two. Max and Mortelli. You could think of us as the American and the Jew, or the modernist and the traditionalist, or the non-believer and the believer, but none of these categories wholly fits either of us. Mortelli, who knows almost nothing about the real America of politics and economics, is uncritically in love with Yankee ways, while Max, who does understand America, is a European socialist. Of course, Mortelli isn't really a citizen. He's the son of immigrants. He grew up among Yiddish-speaking parents and grandparents in a place called Michigan, which he thinks is a province of Lithuania. <laughs> With his mother's milk and his grandmother's Sanka coffee, he took in the shtetl. The things he knows about happened before 1920, many of them closer to 1920 BCE. Thanks to his grandmother's favorite book, Tsena Arena, the women's Bible commentary, he's as comfortable with Abraham and Moses as Max is with Bill Clinton and Shimon Peres. Motelli believes that his ancestors keep tabs on him even after their death. And as if that's not enough, God checks the record every year between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and has been known to make unannounced appearances. This constant checking keeps Mortelli close to the fold, but within his limits, he likes to have a good time. America is made for him. It's a gigantic amusement park filled with good-natured clowns in every shop and office. Max, however, knows better. Max discarded the shtetl. He realized at an early age that by speaking English and reading books, he could please his Gentile teachers. He knew these pleasant women were Gentiles by their failure to talk about cholera or pogroms or Hitler. <laughs> they passed out gold stars and later scholarships. Max understood a good deal when he saw one. <clears throat> to impress his teachers, he memorized the Gettysburg Address. He practiced every night at bedtime as his grandmother marveled at how well he said the Shema Yisrael in English. <clears throat> He read so many books that his grandmother was afraid he would ruin his eyes and never get a good job, and she was right. <laughs> After more than 20 years in school, he became merely a teacher. While Max immersed himself in Shakespeare, Milton, and Christian humanism, Motelli stayed away. More than that, Motelli disappeared. In the seminars and classrooms, he was a forgotten remnant, a Yiddish puff the magic dragon. Then, with formal education behind him and his head filled with the glories of English literature, Max began to write stories. He wanted them to sound like the stories he read in the anthologies. He hoped for British characters who would experience epiphanies, those obscure but luminous moments that reveal the human condition. But all of his people turned out to be Americans, and none of them even knew what an epiphany was. 
they were good-natured folks, clowns in every shop and office. Mortelli had not disappeared. He had been there all along, busy taking notes on the raw material, mostly Max. When Max started up with women and memorized to his coy mistress to impress them, Mortelli almost died laughing. When Max lectured on Christian humanism, Mortelli took quiet revenge for the Crusades. And when Max started writing stories, Mortelli squeezed in his characters, the kinds of Americans he loved to laugh at, ballplayers, truth seekers, entrepreneurs, and vegetarians. Max, of course, did the serious work of being an American. Mortelli stayed in the background, unless Max carried seriousness too far. You live in the Garden of Eden, Mortelli said. Everything around you is funny, and you don't know it because you spend all your time in the library. The life of the mind exists in the library, Max said. My Garden of Eden is the card catalog. Then why are you always looking around at the girls, Mortelli said. Be honest about it. Let's go to a mall. There you can read books and look at girls, as well as shoes and dry goods. I can't write in a mall, Max said. I need a quiet place to work. That's why there's a Christian science reading room, Mortelli said. Meet me there in two months, and I'll give you a book of stories. After Mortelli delivered the stories, as promised, Max gave him a freer hand, and over the years they have collaborated so well that no outsiders recognize the differences between them. Yet the differences are all over their stories. They squabble like the President and Congress, and like them, they pretend to do so for the common good. For example, Mortelli noticed that Max was getting a little too full of himself. His picture was in the paper. People paid him to read aloud to them. And he got free tickets to ball games. So Mortelli wrote a story about a fellow just like Max, a sports-loving lightweight who thought he was a big shot, ready to enter the arena of letters. Mortelli set the story in a boxing ring where Max had to prove himself against a real heavyweight, Norman Mailer. Max danced around in the story, threw a few jabs and metaphors, but when he landed his best shot, Mailer took it in the midsection without even noticing the punch or Max. The lightweight disappeared, engulfed by Mailer. I did you a favor, Mortelli said. Now you can see where ambition will lead you. To return the favor, Max wrote a story about Mortelli's favorite couple, a boy and his mother. He made the boy resemble Mortelli. You like boxing so much, Max said. Try this. The boy, almost middle-aged, had had enough of mom. One day he punched her and went off to Saudi Arabia to find a good job. It took Mortelli a long time to recover from that fictional blow. Nobody hits a mother, he said. You're worse than a lightweight. You're avant-garde. <laughs> After that punch, the mother said she wanted no part of any of their stories, so Mortelli wrote a whole book about his grandmother. Still, none of their internal bickering caused any problems because the commotion took place in literature, one of the quietest neighborhoods in America. And even within that neighborhood, Max and Mortelli spent most of their time in the real boondocks, the short story. Then they moved briefly to a much more expensive neighborhood, the movies. And there they encountered for the first time questions about who they were. Max will explain. 
I wrote a book called Roommates. The main characters were a grandfather, Rachmiel, and his grandson, Max. They spoke Yiddish. Rachmiel prayed three times a day. He wore a yarmulke on his head, a tzitzis under his shirt. It was not hard to guess his tribal identity, or mine. About a year later, a movie came out, also called Roommates. The film, like my book, featured a grandfather and a grandson. And their religion and ethnicity is also easy to identify. They're Polish Catholics. <laughs> Max and Motelli, that solid couple, seemed to have split down the middle. One wrote the book, the other the movie. Many people noticed this split and did not like it. Max received hate mail from Jews. One letter he can quote in its entirety. So, wrote a Brooklyn rabbi who had read an excerpt in the Reader's Digest, if you weren't ashamed for the magazine, why were you ashamed for the movies? Max tried to explain. <clears throat> there is no shame, he wrote, <clears throat> in imagining what it's like to be someone else. That's what I do for a living. The world is full of writers writing about characters like themselves, lawyers writing about lawyers, alcoholics about alcoholics, Jews about Jews. There is no danger that this will come to an end. Our likenesses will always be among us. The writer's job is to make you believe a character is real, not Jewish. This is called verisimilitude, and it evokes empathy, the attempt to put yourself in someone else's skin. Hath not a Gentile skin, Rabbi. <clears throat> this is what writing is all about, and in order to do it, the writer must be free to imagine anything, even a non-Jewish version of himself and his grandfather. If you need examples of great freedom of imagination, may I suggest that you check the Midrash. As far as causing you confusion, Rabbi, for that I do apologize. I assume that you went to the movie expecting it to be the same as the book, since the title was the same. I can tell you that you are not the first to be fooled by a movie title. About 20 years ago, a Hadassah chapter in New Jersey bought out an entire showing of a movie called Torah, Torah, Torah. <laughs> They didn't pay attention to spelling, so instead of Rashi and Rambam, they got Guadalcanal and Uwajima. The lesson, Rabbi, buyer beware. Motelli read Max's reply to the rabbi and tore it up. He wrote his own reply. Dear Rabbi, business is business. <clears throat> the movie people wanted Goyim. They thought that would sell more tickets. The movies are about millions, not about who counts for a minion. <clears throat> if they had left us alone, we could have made a nice Jewish picture. Max tore up that reply and was about to do the same with the rabbi's letter when Motelli stayed his hand and held the sheet of paper up to the writer's face. Look who you're writing to about freedom and imagination. Instead of preaching to the rabbi about empathy, why don't you use a little yourself? Does this look like congregational stationery? <clears throat> Are there names of rich people down the left-hand side of the page? Don't mistake this rabbi for the kind that you know, men who play golf and give speeches and have closets full of suits. 
this man probably lives in a few miserable rooms on Avenue J and supports his six children by working nights for a caterer. While people stuff themselves at weddings and bar mitzvahs, he's in the kitchen making sure there are no bugs in the broccoli or cauliflower. And don't flatter yourself. He didn't read roommates. He said Reader's Digest, didn't he? His boss, the caterer, a rich non-believer, probably tossed him a smeared magazine and said, Rabbi, here's something you'll like. And he did like it. And a few weeks later, when he saw the movie poster with a picture of Peter Falk, he took a chance. This is a man who had probably never gone to a movie before. The closest he had come to excess was a video of street dancing on Simchas Torah. <laughs> because he liked your character so much, he went to a movie house and risked sitting next to a woman. <clears throat> don't lecture to this man about empathy and freedom. In Crown Heights, those words don't mean anything. Send him a refund for the movie ticket and throw in an autographed book and be sure to sign your name in Yiddish. <clears throat> Max refused. They fought to a standstill, and the rabbi, still awaiting an answer, has probably been taken in by Torah, Torah, Torah on video. In their second movie adventure, Max and Mortelli stayed away from Jews. They wrote a film called The Air Up There, which featured a college coach and his would-be recruit, a six-foot-nine-inch African youth. No rabbis complained, but a New York sports writer skewered Max. The sports writer said that a white man should not have written the film, and he took literally a line from the press kit that quoted Max, a five-foot-four-inch white writer, as saying that he liked to imagine himself as a six-foot-nine-inch black power forward. <clears throat> if you want to imagine black heroes, the sports writer said, forget basketball, write about real heroes. Mazel tov, Motelli said, you got what you always wanted, you made it to the sports page. <clears throat> Max threw the paper down with disgust. Who does he think he is giving me directions about what I'm allowed to write? Didn't Shakespeare imagine Othello and Mike Twain, Mark Twain Jim? Didn't George Eliot, a Gentile and a woman, create a male Jew? That sports writer has a lot more chutzpah than the rabbi. Relax, Motelli said. The man had a column to write. It's just business. Anyway, your ball player is not exactly the Moor of Venice. <clears throat> the principle is the same, Max said. Every time someone in a newspaper criticizes you, you're ready to call in Shakespeare as a character witness. He's a journalist, don't forget. We tried that too. To calm him down, Motelli helped Max recall their first journalism assignment, an investigation of beef barbecue. When Max accepted that job, Motelli turned up his nose and he kept it in the air. Throughout East Texas, wherever they inspected barbecue pits, Max interviewed, Motelli sniffed. Max quoted happy eaters, adults in paper bibs, tearing into their dripping meat with two hands and a clean shirt. Motelli took in the beef and mesquite aromas. In a switch from their usual roles, Max leaned toward the meat and potatoes while Motelli hankered for the spiritual. He even quoted one of Max's favorites, John Keats. Heard melodies are sweet, unheard sweeter still. He was talking about poetry, Max said, not barbecue. So what, Motelli said, what's true of poetry is also true of beef. You can have the food, I'll take the hunger. 
Do you think that Kafka was the only Jew who understood hunger? While Max talked to the cooks and managers who thought he was from the health department, Motelli analyzed the smoke and the emptiness. Max concocted a tomato, Worcestershire sauce, and onion recipe. Esquire magazine decorated their reportage with drawings of Texas longhorns and sizzling fat. Together, they received this response from their sister. So, for a thousand dollars, you ate treif. <laughs> if our own sister didn't understand that our work is all about aroma and hunger, Motelli said, what can you expect from outsiders? The people who try to tell us what we should be doing are always ones. They can be pious ones like the rabbi or politically correct ones like the sports writer, but they're all singles. They're not a twosome like we are. They see one thing, they know one thing. How hard is it for one to be right? A one is always right. Anyway, they just have opinions. They don't do research like we do. In their research, they're sometimes subtle, like private detectives on the trail of a suspect emotion, but most of the time, Max and Motelli are daydreaming, or at the ballpark studying statistics, or in the midst of nature staring at ants to sharpen their sense of destiny. But whatever else they do, they're always conducting their ongoing primary research. They eavesdrop so lasciviously that they are now required in certain public places to wear t-shirts emblazoned with the warning, I'm listening. Age has not altered them, nor has a half century of squabbles caused them to consider breaking up. They understand how much they need one another. Without Motelli, Max knows that he would be a pale imitator, a John Updike without Protestants. And Motelli alone would be exactly that, Motelli alone born into Yiddish at the exact moment that murderers were extinguishing it, he would have the language without the people. He needs Americans to populate his shtetl. Of course, these two are just a couple. The great ones, like Shakespeare and Tolstoy, aren't mere couples. They're more like corporate Japan. They take in a whole society and guarantee full employment. Max and Motelli resemble their recent ancestors, the peddlers, more than they resemble the great writers. With their wares, they roam the neighborhoods. An essay, a story, a novel, a screenplay, they're just glad to have customers. Since they're a twosome, they can't enjoy solitary pleasures. They can never be single-minded or even focused. Like all couples, their highest goal is harmony, and they find it, above all, in the lively carnival of America in the English language, in words like these, which are, to their ears, music. Thank you. Thank you so much. Rebecca Goldstein's honors, like her dual career as a novelist and philosopher, seem to come in pairs. She's the recipient of not one, but two Whiting Awards, one for fiction, one for philosophy. And she has also won two National Jewish Book Awards, as well as the Edward Lewis Welland Award for Jewish fiction. After receiving her PhD in philosophy at Princeton, she was a professor of philosophy at Barnard College from 1976 to 86. Currently, she teaches philosophy at Trinity College in Hartford. 
Her 1983 novel, The Mind-Body Problem, was, when I arrived at Princeton in the mid-'80s, a cult Bible for all young women academics. Since this brilliant debut, she has gone on from strength to strength in a suite of ambitious novels of both ideas and passions. In the late summer passion of A Woman of Mind, Dark Sister, Mazel, and most recently, Properties of Light, a novel of love, betrayal, and quantum physics, Goldstein probes the passion her characters bring to ideas, as well as their ideas of passion. Among her most unforgettable characters are Sasha, Chloe, and Phoebe, grandmother, mother, and daughter, whose misgivings and complex resolutions are the story of Mazel. In 1996, in recognition of her contribution to American letters, Rebecca Goldstein received the Distinguished MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. It's an honor and a pleasure to welcome back to Princeton Rebecca Goldstein. Thank you so much for that, Esther. Um, It's always a great, great pleasure to return to Princeton. Um, Princeton not only trained my mind, but seems to have... um, uh, permanently colonized my imagination. My first book uh, was set in Princeton, The Mind-Body Problem. My last book, Properties of Light, was also set in Princeton. Um, I want to read a little bit from um, The Mind-Body Problem. And then, um, that was written 20 years ago, um, I'd like to read um, the last thing that I've, I've uh, written. It's um, an afterword to Mazel for a, a new edition. Um, I'll just read a little bit from that. I'm often asked what it's like to be married to a genius. The question used to please me as an affirmation of my place, of my counting for something, if only through marriage, in the only world that counted for anything. But even back then, at the beginning of my marriage, I was uncertain how to answer. Wife of the genius does not in itself define a distinct personality. The description and my own fluid nature left me the burden of choice and I found it hard to choose. I could never even decide how I should arrange my face when I answered. Should I radiate the faintly dazed glow of one who stands within sweating distance of the raging fires of creativity? Or should my features exhibit the sharp practicality capable of managing the mundane affairs of an intellectual demigod? I could never decide and usually ended up trying to look both dazed and practical to look a logical contradiction, which is, I suppose, to look a fool. And that, of course, is the very, very last thing I have ever wanted to look. What do they want to hear from the wife of the genius? Living with Noam is an intellectual challenge, a cerebral adventure. This morning was a typical challenge. I was drinking my coffee in the kitchen when Noam burst into the room, his face dissolved in anger. Renee, where's my pen? My God, I can't find my pen. What did you do with it? Noam, I didn't touch your pen. Wait, I'll get you mine. I don't want yours. I want mine. His voice was climbed up into the whining range. You know I can't stand losing my pen. Then slid back down into the register of decision. Listen, I've got to find it. Would you please help me instead of smugly sitting there? Think back, Noam. When did you have it last? I don't know. You think I can be bothered remembering trivialities like that? Unstated premise implied by the focus glare. That is one of the purposes of the wife. 
I don't know. I know I was using it last night. Do you think that was the last time, Noam? I think so. God, I don't know. I think so, yes. Okay, good. We'll proceed on that hypothesis. Now, where were you using it last night? My study. I was at my desk. And you looked all over your desk? Yes. Are you sure? Did you look carefully? My question was informed by experience. For God's sakes, yes. I wouldn't have said the pen was lost if I hadn't thoroughly searched. That's what it means for the pen to be lost. Now, would you stop driving me crazy and help me? No, I'm, I'm trying. Calm down or we won't get anywhere. You must have taken it away from the desk. Did you get up for any reason while you were writing? No, listen, Renee, you must have taken it. We ought to be cross-examining you. You're always taking my things. No, no, I'm, believe me. I'd remember if I had. I know how important your pen is to you. Did the phone ring while you were writing? I don't know. In any case, I didn't answer it. Did you get up to get something to eat? Hmm, let me think. I can't remember. Renee, how can you ask me to remember a trivial thing like that? What time were you writing? About 11, 12, I don't know. Well, did you eat late last night? Yes! God, yes, I had some ice cream. Hearts pounding, we ran to the refrigerator and flung open the freezer door. There, sitting absurdly, between a can of orange juice and the rum raisin haagen gleamed a very cold black and silver paper mate. Again and again they asked me, the other faculty wives, the worshiping graduate students, the lesser professors, what is it like to live with him, to live with a genius like Noam? If it were only the truth they were after and not legends of greatness, I think I would know how to answer them. I believe I could describe life with Noam Himmel, that blazing star who first burst upon the mathematical heavens in 1950 at the age of 12 with his brilliant seminal paper on the properties of supernatural numbers. I lay my answer, I lay my life before you. I met Noam Himmel soon after his triumphant arrival in Princeton. The sense of conquest was more on the part of the welcoming community for once, Himmel let it be known that he had tired of Cambridge and wanted to come back to the States, every prestigious mathematics department in the country had courted him. Princeton had had to promise him much, besides rather a lot of money, at least in academic terms, and very light teaching duties, he was told that he might pick up and go on leave to another university whenever the spirit moved him. By accepting Princeton, he wouldn't have to give up his other suitors entirely. Noam Himmel was then 38 and had already been famous for 26 years, ever since the first startling publication presenting the supernaturals, the Himmel numbers, a new category of mathematical existence. The supernaturals were well named by their discoverer, for they are numbers so big that they are used for collections too large to form sets. How can there be such numbers? And yet there are. Himmel had proved them. These numbers that realize in their immensity and enigma, their inaccessibility to reason too simplistic, all the suggestions of their name. If the work of the great Georg Cantor in the late 19th century had led mathematics up past the finite realm into the sublime heights of the transfinites, then the work of the 12-year-old boy from Manhattan had led even beyond to the transinfinites. But Harvard had refused to accept the boy until he finished high school. 
Some among the faculty there had groused about prodigies who often burned themselves out early. He had entered Harvard at 16 and four years later was teaching there. He had never bothered to get a Ph.D. and nobody had bothered to ask him to. And he hadn't burned himself out early. The 26 years had produced many mathematically important results, though none perhaps to equal the dazzling supernaturals. My own position in the world of Princeton was incomparably inferior. I was a graduate student in philosophy and not a highly successful one at that. My first year there had been disastrous, and my second just beginning gave every indication of being worse. In short, I was floundering, and thus quite prepared to follow the venerably old feminine tradition of being saved by marriage. And given the nature of my distress, no one could better play the part of my rescuing hero than the great Noam Himmel. For the man had an extravagance of what I was so agonizingly feeling a lack of, objective proof of one's own intellectual merit. My Barnard experience as an undergraduate had not prepared me for Princeton. Even the physical presence of the place confounded my views of how things ought to be. This affluent suburban town, so distressingly similar to the Westchester community in which I had grown up, this was a seat of serious scholarship, and its outrageously suburban-looking inhabitants were serious thinkers. My eyes were used to the gloom of Columbia's Broadway campus and were having trouble focusing amidst Princeton's brilliance. And not just my eyes were in need of readjustment. My views on the life of the mind had been modeled on the people I had known at Columbia, urban intellectuals, unkempt, graceless, morose creatures, who walked around with eyes downcast, muttering to themselves. Those were the sorts of bodies, neglected, misshapen, decaying, that serious minds belonged in. But here were these first-rate thinkers who worried about their backyards and backhands, who discussed boober and black holes over barbecues. The genteel goyishness of the place overwhelmed me. There were Jews at Princeton, of course, but nobody seemed Jewish. At Columbia, even the non-Jews had seemed Jewish. <laughs> um, I'm just going to read a little from... They go for their first date to La Ayers over down on Witherspoon. I'll have the soft-shell crabs, I told the waiter, having sampled them on previous occasions. They're good here, I said to Noam, who was looking pitifully at bay. Good, I'll have them too. Noam looked as if he had solved a major problem. I bet I'll enjoy them more than you, I told him as the waiter left, emboldened to the point of flirtatiousness by the display of Himmel's awkwardness. Oh, why is that? Because I was brought up an Orthodox Jew. For me, they're seasoned with sin. I'm afraid I don't understand. They're trafe, unkosher. Crabs, he said. I thought only pig products were unkosher. <laughs> Noam, it turned out, was amazingly ignorant of things Jewish for someone who had grown up in New York, a more relevant fact than his having been Jewish. He, in turn, was amazed by my account of my upbringing, particularly the all-girls yeshiva I had very hastily been enrolled in when non-Jewish boys from my public school began telephoning for dates. 
I had gone to public school only because my parents couldn't afford to send my brother and me to the expensive day school serving Westchester's conservative and less populous Orthodox communities. My brother, being male, got priority. And sending me to yeshiva in the dangerous city had been out of the question, but not quite as out of the question as those boys calling nightly on the phone. So I was soon commuting to the Lower East Side to one of the more right wing of the all-girls schools. The teachers here checked our hemlines for modesty every morning, and the principal came into our biology class at the start of our lesson on evolution, informing us that although they were required to teach this for the New York State Regents exam, it was all unproved apicorsis, or heresy, and we shouldn't believe any of it. But as my mother so often wailed, it was too late. You were already an apicorus, and so I was. Um, this is just a very abbreviated uh, version of the afterword to Mazel. I first encountered the main characters of Mazel in the metaphor of a cluster of soap bubbles. Standing over the kitchen sink, absentmindedly rinsing the dinner dishes, I was thinking of one of my daughters, my eldest. She was probably around 11 or 12 at the time and already fully engaged in the necessary and terrible project of separating from her mother. We had been extraordinarily close, she and I, as we would, though I had no way of knowing this then, be again someday. I had been treated almost from the moment that she had first learned to speak, unusually early, of course, to a steady consumption of the sweet outpourings of her active little soul. I fed on these, and I knew her. But now there were only the varieties of her silences to contemplate, and the awful knowledge of how very little I knew, with fretting imagination trying to fill in where easy communication had once superbly done the job. So I stood and rinsed and fretted and remembered, ranging back in time not only over the relationship in which I was the mother, but the one in which I had been the daughter, enlivening with these memories my sense of the soul-engendering importance of my daughter's project. I remembered all too vividly and tried to puzzle out some vision of an ideal of mother-daughter relationships, one that would allow for the privacy, solitude, and autonomy that these projects of parent-child separation, often so clumsily, so desperately overplayed, are trying to secure and yet open to the intimacy, natural and right, of such a bond. How badly my own attempt at separating as a daughter had turned out, resulting in a separation that had amounted to a permanent severance. My mother and I had never found our way back to one another, and that never, finalized by her death, was as damaging to me as I can only imagine it was to her. So I rinsed and fretted and remembered and longed, and the image came to me of a cluster of soap bubbles. I had an acquaintance, a mathematician, here at Princeton, of course, where else, whose specialty was the geometry of soap bubbles. So I knew that there were some pretty, extremely pretty equations that described the configurations of froth. And it had always amused me that the rigor and precision of mathematics, 
could be imposed on the most ephemeral of surfaces. So rinsing and fretting and longing and grieving, the image came to me of clustering soap bubbles, each of them separate and self-contained, but still bonded together with the inviolable necessity of mathematical truth, and yet heartbreakingly fragile for all that. And I thought, yes. And to try to tease a little more understanding out of my metaphor, I began to play around with the configuration of characters, mothers and daughters, who would answer to my new vision of the ideal. I thought that the metaphor was worth at least, uh, but also at most, a short story. What I wanted for my purpose were mothers and daughters who were so separate from one another that each spoke a sort of language, a soul language, unintelligible to the other. So that complete exhaustive knowledge of the one by the other was a logical impossibility. And yet, in the midst of their unknowing and not understanding, these mothers and daughters would sustain a love and an intimacy that would be all that one could hope for. I knew immediately that one of the daughters in the constellation would be a mathematician, that the language that she spoke in her soul would be mathematics. Unlike many literary types, I know what it is to love mathematics and have probably been as deeply stirred by the structural beauty of an elegant proof as by anything else. People whose minds are filled with the inhuman beauty of mathematics often have quite distinct personalities, as if some of the uniqueness of their field has rubbed off on them, and they intrigue me. I named the mathematical daughter of my configuration Phoebe, which in Greek means shining. And then I go on to describe how Phoebe's mother uh, speaks the language of ancient Greek. She's a professor of classics uh, with a specialty in the tragedies of Euripides. But I needed another central figure, Chloe's mother, Phoebe's grandmother. What language could this grandmother speak that her daughter and granddaughter could not? a language that would express certain truths about the speaker that would be difficult, if not impossible, to render fully in translation. Yiddish, I suddenly thought. Now, there is a language that a grandparent often is the only one in the family to speak. It was only through a sort of accident, then, that Jewishness was introduced into this configuration at all, entering out of my need to satisfy the formal requirements of the little exercise I had set myself in giving narrative substance to my private metaphor, dictating that I provide a third unshared language for my character. And so I made the grandmother a former Yiddish actress, someone who had once been a star of a culture that was no more. Yiddish would be the language that, in her daughter's and granddaughter's unknowing, would mark the untraversable distances of this character's soul. And I named her Sasha. I wrote the short story, and I called it The Geometry of Soap Bubbles and Impossible Love. And in it, I tried to delineate the clustering characters conforming to my ideal of clustering soap bubbles. The only character who had required my doing some research in order to gain some access into her interiority had been the grandmother, Sasha. I read here and there about the Yiddish theater that had once flourished in Europe between the two world wars, about the culture which had been in a very active state of recreating itself, grappling with issues of Jewish identity that seemed eerily familiar. I kept reading long after the character of Sasha was fully formed. 
I didn't really need to know all that I was learning about the vibrant, creative world of a lost people, my people. And yet I couldn't seem to get enough of it and discovered in the course of it that I kind of spoke Yiddish or at least could read it because the German and the Hebrew, by logical entailment, I kind of could grasp Yiddish. Once again, here was love, a burning desire to know, coupled with the recognition of the painful limits of fully understanding, a separation with untraversable distances, once again the finality of death foreclosing the possibility of true acquaintance, imagination trying to fill in the wide spaces of unknowing. Though the story for which these three characters have been created had been written, I found that I could no more quit the company of my characters than I could stop reading about the Yiddishist experiment that had once been explored so briefly in an attempt to solve the conundrum of Jewish identity, which is yet another dilemma, just like my original mother-daughter problem, having essentially to do with love. How does one reconcile the pull of one's membership in a particular people's existence with one's pull to partake in the whole wide world? Exclusivity versus inclusivity, particularism versus universality, Jews have always been keenly alive to the exquisite agonies of being pulled apart by loves pointed like vectors in opposite directions. Remembering and longing and grieving and imagining. One soul's language never fully renderable to another. Untranslatability always imposing itself between us, enclosing the vastness of untraversable distances. What can we do then but to try and imagine? And in the imagining, the felt need for imagining, acknowledge the impossibility of ever fully knowing a configuration of soap bubbles, radiant and complex, precious and unspeakably fragile. I sit here writing these words in a radiant, complicated city where the rubble is still smoking, the sense of life's fragility too overwhelming at this precise moment to bear. And so it is that I repeat the last words of Mazel. May we only meet at happy occasions, the face pressed up against the window, kindly disposed toward the fragile life that lies within. New York City, September 30th, 2001. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Emigrating to the United States from England at the age of 18, Alan Isler attended Hunter College and Columbia University, where he received his Ph.D. in Renaissance literature. Between 1967 and 1995, he was professor of English literature at Queens College, CUNY. His acclaimed first novel, The Prince of West End Avenue, evoked the bittersweet world of aging Jewish Holocaust survivors residing in the Emma Lazarus, a retirement home on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. As his wry narrator Otto Corner announces at the start, the readiness is all, and well he might, since they are readying their own production of Hamlet. 
among the, uh, among the uproarious connivings and intrigues of the residents unfolds a drama of sober, anguished confrontation between Corner and his haunting past. For this novel, Alan Isler won the National Book Critics Circle Award and the National Jewish Book Award for Fiction. Since 1994, Otto Kerner has come into excellent company among Isler's other outsized, outrageous heroes. Professor Nicholas Marcus Craven of Craven Images, Shylock of the Bacon Fancier, and most recently, the scandalous Father Edmund Music, a Jewish priest, and clerical errors. It's a great pleasure to welcome to Princeton, Alan Isler. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to begin at the beginning because then I don't have to make any explanations. You may wonder when you add my accent to the content of my narrative words what I am doing up here as a Jewish American writer. But be patient. Sipping a Calvados in a bar in the Rue de Malongin and reading an English newspaper left on the seat by its previous occupant, I discovered to my surprise that I had just died. It appeared that I had driven my car, a modest Morris Minor of a certain age, into the famous Stuart Oak of the Beale Estate, the oak so named because planted to commemorate the death of the unfortunate James II. The Stuart Oak had sustained little damage. The Morris Minor was now a twisted, tortured tangle of metal from which had been extracted a pulped human body supposed to be mine. Our local constable, Timothy Tubby Whiting, had identified the car and its owner. Tubby has a palate for local ale and bitter than which there is surely none more refined. He is, moreover, as am I, a Catholic. He rather more persuasively than I. But he is no Sherlock Holmes, or, for that matter, Father Brown. First, I phoned Maud back at the hall. She, foolish soul, supposed, or pretended to suppose, I was phoning from the other side. God be praised! Deo gratias! Oh, sweet Jesus! Oh, oh, oh! Maud, my love, I'm all right. All right, is it? Of course you're all right. There, with the Holy Virgin and the Blessed Angels. Is that the heavenly choir I hear? From the jukebox at the back of the bar, the late Edith Piaf sang, <laughs> My Lord. I mean that I'm not dead. Not dead, is it? Of course you're not dead. Everlasting life, that's what he promised us. That's why he bled upon the cross. Oh, I must tell Father Bastian immediately. Oh, Edmund, I miss you so. Be patient, my love. I'll be with you as soon as I'm allowed. And she hung up. A silly old woman. It's extraordinary how any sort of excitement brings back the brogue she otherwise abandoned with her youth. She was jesting, surely. Her relief must have found its outlet in hysteria. And no doubt Mother's Ruin has played its part, too. Yes, gin has long been her favourite tipple, and lots of it. But in a pinch she will make do with whatever's on offer. She likes to pretend that I am the one who has a little drinking problem. 
As for her, why, she drinks merely to be sociable, or because she finds herself without company, or because she feels cheerful, or because she is bored, or because she is worried, or because she's not. <laughs> we don't talk about it. Ah, but to remember what she was like when first I knew her, Maud Moriarty, the keeper of my house and my flesh, lo, these many years. Ah, the swish of her hips, the rustle of her skirts, the slender shape of her arched above me. And yet to see and hear what she has become as time's winged chariot rattles behind us nearer and nearer. Gone, or at any rate usually hidden nowadays, are the wit and sharp intelligence. She has played an Irish washerwoman for so long she has at last become one. Too much television, perhaps. Oh, she had not these ways when all the wild summer was in her gaze. Next I phoned Tubby, assuring him that I was as good as on my way home. His shock at hearing my voice was somewhat mitigated by his acceptance of the glad tidings. I was still alive. But who was it then, father? he said almost accusingly. We squeezed and scraped out of the car. It must have been doing a hundred down the drive. The drive is curved and dangerously sleep, uh, steep as it plunges toward the Stuart Oak. Do you suppose it was poor Trevor? As I remember, I'd asked him to pick up the car over the weekend. The handbrakes had given out and the footbrake was sluggish. Trevor Stuffins was our local odd job man, a fellow of my own age and girth. Hmm, said Tubby noncommittally. We must pray for his soul. He was a Protestant father. All the more reason. If it was Trevor, Tubby was capable of learning from his mistakes. Do me a favour, Tubby. Go and have a word with Maud. Explain to her I'm still alive. Alive, that is, in the this-worldly sense. Do it gently. Before leaving the Rue de Malongin, I ordered another Calvados and sipped it slowly. My trip to Paris had been a failure, but I felt somehow like one recalled to life. Could it be that Castignac was right? He had telephoned me uh, a month before, getting to a phone who knew how, and warned that Vatican assassins were after me. Watch out, Edmund. Pay attention. They want you dead. This was followed by a mad cackle. They will stop at nothing, nothing. And then the line went suddenly silent. But poor Castignac is a lunatic. Why should I have paid attention? Well, perhaps because of the historical record. Parva, as we say, componere magnis, to compare small things with big. The popes themselves have not been safe from their co-religionists, even as their co-religionists have not been safe from the popes. In the 10th century, fully one in three popes died in, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, suspicious circumstances. Pope Stephen VI was deposed and strangled in prison. And as for murderous corruption, poisonous intrigue, and the savage pursuit of power, why, everyone knows that the popes of the high renaissance, the Borgias and their like, wrote the book, created the template. To step a little closer to our own time, what of John Paul I, who died in 1978 after only 34 days on the throne, eh? I point only to the fact, nothing more. Dear me, no. But if so magnificent a beast as a lion may be cruelly slain in his lair, what hope for compassion has a mere flea? 
Still, a sense of proportion is a wonderful thing. I cannot truly believe that what I might call the upper hierarchy is after my blood, much as they would like to see me out of a job. No, but rather lower down, though. Father Fred Twombly, say, chairman of the Department of English at Holyrood College, Joliet, Illinois, my undoubted enemy since we were graduate students together in Paris, the wretch who wants my job, the fact that I have it and that he does not, gnawing at his vitals like a poisonous mineral. He, I think, if all else failed him, could interfere with the brakes of my car. But all else has not yet failed him. He thinks he has me by the hip, and it may be that he has. I shall tell you about him anon, and about his latest letter to me, the occasion of my trip to Paris. Perhaps I should pray. Perhaps not. At what moment, I wonder, did I lose my faith? It is a question that has no answer, a semantic dilemma. Have you stopped beating your wife? To lose something virginity, say, or a gold watch, one must first have possessed it. But I put it on this faith because it was offered me. It suited me. It was a habit in both senses of the word. It was at once an ecclesiastical vestment, an outward sign of belief, and a way of life to which I became comfortably, well, perhaps that word needs modification, but for the moment let it stand, comfortably accustomed. Which brings young Castinac's joke to mind. He rose to the exalted rank of papal nuncio, travelled the world, Guatemala, Lebanon, Hawaii, wherever the Holy See had need of him. A spy after his fashion, yes, one of God's spies, gazing into the mysteries of things. But he also learned at first hand the intricacies of the Vatican's inner workings, what the Protestant Milton calls its secret conclaves. And where is he now? As I have said, stark staring mad terminally bonkers or so designated and in the merciful hands of the sisters of the five wounds a hospice in Cambridge Massachusetts well he always liked America did Castignac why do I mention him ah yes the joke we were seminarians then you see the old Adam not quite squeezed out of us not out of Castignac in particular. What a rogue he was. He possessed the blue-black curly hair, black eyes and olive skin of the true Corsican, a young Napoleon, but well endowed, hugely endowed. In the dormitory he slapped away at it, down, wicked fellow, down, and thus revealed himself grandly tumescent to our secret envy. Look, he said one early morning, pointing through the window grill to the courtyard, where an ancient van idled, and out of which stepped a young woman. She opened the van's back door and took out a basket. That's Veronique, he said. She's the laundress. Every fortnight she picks up the monk's dirty habits. He looked at us slyly, and then he roared with laughter, and so we understood that we'd been told a joke. But to get back to the question of faith... In those early days, I gloried in the words of Tertullian, Certum est quia absurdum est. Those words had, to use the modern idiom, a certain in-your-face quality that appealed to the adolescent that I was. To believe in something because it is absurd. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. But I had, in any case, reasons enough to be grateful to them, to the church, I mean. Notice that them. What an astonishing eruption after all these years. 
I was taken in, given shelter, occasionally shown kindness. Those were terrifying times, quite terrifying. The saintly fathers saved my life, and, so they believed, my immortal soul. Still, I had an early taste for it, I must admit. The incense, the chanting, one's breath during mass of a winter's morning rising like mist to the cathedral's vault. I enjoyed not piety, but the spectacle of piety, and to the burgeoning visionary imagination myself as pious. I could see myself on my knees, dragging myself over the cruel stones to throw my broken body, blooded, prostrate before the cross. Of course, I never did any such thing. Self-flagellation outside of the visionary imagination was not my style. But it is clear enough to me now that what I possessed as a youth was a painterly inner eye, if not a painter's ability. I saw, as it were, a Catholicism as it might exist in a platonic realm of ideas. And to that I responded, a victory of frosty sensuality over pulsating reason. But to return to Tertullian, to know intellectually that the whole rigmarole was absurdum, and therefore to believe... Well, really. Suppose I had put it to the faithful as follows. Know that the world and all that inhabits it, all of you, my dear little brothers and sisters, and even I myself, we are actually resident in the mind of a monstrous carp swimming languidly in the warm waters of eternity. Certum est, quia absurdum est. You see what I mean. It's not for nothing that the phrase hocus-pocus derives from the words of the consecration in the Mass, hoc est enum corpus meum, and in turn gives birth to the word hoax. How on earth did I get myself into such a pickle? Are the agents of the Vatican after me in England now virtually at the end of the millennium simply because almost six decades earlier the Wehrmacht marched triumphantly into Paris, that time you may remember when Hitler gave his little hop of delight. It's hard to believe. I really ought to explain what a Frenchman is doing here in England in the first place. Before that, I ought to reveal that I am in fact a Jew. Well, that I arrived in this world a Jew. My parents were born not in France, but in Hungary, in Dunaharashti to be exact, a townlet south of Budapest, and went to Paris, a young married couple, in 1923, a mere five years before my birth. Curiously, and coincidentally, Dunaharashti was also the birthplace of Solomon Rubin Chaim Falsch, 1720-1796, Kabbalist, sorcerer, scallywag, and sometime adventurer, who, reformed, became known to his disciples as Pish, the Pish, a word formed from the acronym of his supposed attributes. Falsch in his time blossomed into the Baal Shem of Ludlow. Now here's a figure who, for all sorts of reasons, appeals to me. I shall have rather more to say of him anon. Uh, in fact, I shall say uh, more of him right now, um, since his story uh, is interwoven into the story that takes place in the present day. So I think I should at least... Uh, this afternoon introduce you to him. Not much is known about the early years of the Baal Shem of Ludlow, not even with certainty the year of his birth, although the available clues point to 1720. 
In fact, we only have his word for it that he was born in Dunaharashti. I dropped from my mother's womb in Dunaharashti in the third week of the Great Freeze when starving wolves roamed the town square. That was the year of ill fortune, the cursed year when the ancient church of St. Stephen's succumbed to the flames and the innocent Jews were accused of incendiary wickedness. That comes from his table talk in 1768. Well, in addition to his word, we have that of his embittered contemporary, Jacob Emden, who denounced him as a Sabbatean heretic and a fraud. And in the vigorous, no-holds-barred religious polemics of the time, the Dummkopf of Dunaharashti. Besides, why should Falsch lie about such a thing? What glory attaches itself to birth in such a place? It's not exactly Paris or Prague or Vienna. It's not a manger either. He early became known as a magician and sorcerer, escaping burning for his shenanigans in Westphalia, only through the interference of Oscar Leopold, Ritter von Schweindorf, whose sexual impotence Falsch had allegedly cured. Certainly the old knight's young wife had brought forth a lusty boy child with curly black hair and a humped little nose, an event provoking a local tavern poet to quip, Sein oder nicht sein ist hier die Frage, a pun on the opening line of Hamlet's most famous soliloquy, and for in German, sein may mean either to be or his. Falsch, according to the Archbishop-Elector of Cologne, was leading astray the young wives and maidens of Christendom with his odious charms and filters, imperiling their immortal souls with a species of carnal Jewish diabolism. If he was prevented from burning Falsch, so be it. The Ritter and his cronies would one day face their god, but the Archbishop-Elector could at least banish the Jew, and so banish him he did. In Cologne and throughout Westphalia and the Rhineland, Faust tells us in Table Talk, the news of his banishment was met with a general and especially female moan. From Cologne, he made his way to Amsterdam in the Low Countries, where he seems to have put aside for a while his alchemical experiments and his delvings into what today would be called holistic medicine. In Amsterdam, instead, he immersed himself deeply in the sacred mysteries of Kabbalah, studying under the Kotsina Rebbe, also known as the Gaon of Kotsin. It was in Amsterdam, too, that he acquired the first of his three wives, Leah, the daughter of Benassa Halevi, a wealthy spice merchant, with dealings in the New World. He seems genuinely to have loved Leah, she of the dark eyes and impudent breasts. Her death and that of their baby and childbirth sent him spinning downwards into a depression from which, according to the Gaon and reported in Table Talk by Falsch himself, he could hope to emerge only in the Holy Land, most likely in Safed, but perhaps also in Jerusalem. The Kutsina Rebbe prevailed upon Falsch's father-in-law to underwrite a trip for the widower to Palestine. Falsch, in fact, curtailed his eastward pilgrimage in Alexandria, whose climate and cosmopolitanism appealed to him, and sojourned there for five years, a disciple of the great Arabic scholar Abu Ali ibn Osana, or Avisana. It was with Avisana that he studied the medical works of Moses Maimonides, the renowned medieval philosopher and codifier of Jewish law, especially Maimonides' treatise on cohabitation, written at the request of a Syrian sultan. 
Among the remedies for various kinds of sexual dysfunction noted in the treatise was one that was to endear Faust to Sir Percival Beale, who in the spring of 1748 was in Egypt on one of his earliest searches for antiquities and curiosities. Sir Percival had heard from an English consul in Naples of a wonder-working medical chappy in Alexandria, a dark-skinned, white-bearded heathen sitting on silken cushions, Fella can cure anything, my dear sir, from bleeding gums and poxy sweats to syrupy wounds and swollen ghoulies. And once settled in the city, sought an audience with Avisana. It is a measure of Falsch's charm that Avisana had come to regard his disciple as a favourite, if wayward son, one whose intellectual brilliance outweighed his religious stubbornness and occasional peccadilloes. At any rate, he thought to put a bit of business in his disciple's way and sent Sir Percival to consult Falsch, whom he described as a master of the erotic arts. Not impotence, Dr. Sir Percival told Falsch. Not that at all, do you see? can get it up all right, stands firm, the naughty fellow, at the drop of a hat. Now, should I say the lift of a shift, eh, what? Not bad, that lift of a shift. Do you see? Point is, I die too soon, expire in a rush, lose all my pearly liquid treasure, as the poet says, usually before I can sheathe my sword. Wench lies panting. Lass, sir, what's to become of me? Alas, alas, why do you tease me so? No good, that. Terrible thing, do you see? Can you help me, doctor? Thanks to Maimonides, the answer was yes. But of course, Faust did not say so right away. Instead, he looked grave and stroked his beard. Be so good, honoured sir, as to show me the offending member. Reveal all. Aye, sir. Mm-hmm. Sir Percival unbuttoned his breeches, dropped the flap, and encouraged his member and its attachments to appear. At rest now, do you see? Falsch took a silver pointer from the low table beside him and with it lifted Sir Percival's flaxed penis, allowed it to fall, lifted it and let it fall once more. Yes, honoured sir, I believe I can help you. My fee is 1,000 guineas. If you wish to remedy your misfortune, return one week from today with half of that sum. If not, it was for me in any case a great honour to meet you. (laughs) Sir Percival returned the following week. Falsch handed him a flask containing an amber liquid. Massage your cheeky fellow here with for two hours before you approach the fortunate lady. Then wash him in warm water. He will remain upstanding for two hours before he releases his pulsating pearly liquid treasure. And for two hours after. And if the balm fails to work its magic, fear not, it will not fail. My fee is 1,000 guineas, but I will accept today the half I asked you to bring with you. If the balm fails, you will tell me so, and I will return to you your 500 guineas. Otherwise, you will pay me the half still owing, and I will give you three further fintucks of your cure. Within a week, Sir Percival paid the balance. For those who are curious, here is the recipe Maimonides gives in his treatise on cohabitation. One litre carrot oil. Is no one taking notes? (laughs) One litre carrot oil. One litre radish oil. 250 millilitres mustard oil. 500 millilitres live saffron coloured ants. In a large pot, combine the carrot oil, radish oil and mustard oil. Add the live ants. Set the mixture in the sun for seven days. 
Massage the penis with a mixture for two hours, then wash the penis in warm water. Repeat when necessary. Thank you. Um, in honor of the Yankees, maybe we should have a one-minute stretch. Anybody needs to? Please don't leave. Please don't leave. Okay, please have a seat. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. We're going to get started. It's a delight to welcome back to Princeton our friend, neighbor, and colleague, Alicia Ostreicher. She's published nine volumes of poetry, including The Imaginary Lover, which won the William Carlos Williams Prize in 1986. Also, The Crack in Everything, 1996, a finalist for the National Book Award, and The Little Space, Home Selected and New, a finalist for the National Book Award and the Lenore Marshall Prize. Among her many honors are fellowships from the NEA, the Guggenheim Foundation, and the Rockefeller Foundation. Her poems have appeared, well, everywhere we find good poems, in the New Yorker, the Nation, the Atlantic, the Paris Review, Ontario Review, Lilith, Tikkun, and many others, and they are frequently anthologized. She's also the author of Stealing the Language, the Emergence of Women's Poetry in America, and The Nakedness of the Fathers, Biblical Visions and Revisions. A scholar and essayist, she recently published Dancing at the Devil's Party, Essays on Poetry, Politics, and the Erotic. Alicia Ostreicher is a distinguished professor of English at Rutgers University and has also taught here at Princeton in the Creative Writing Program and in the Atelier Program. This fall, she is visiting a visiting fellow at Clare Hall, Cambridge University. We're delighted to have her with us today, Alicia Ostreicher. Thank you, Sari, and I'm delighted to be here. I'm going to to do to start with with um, a longish, heavy, tragic poem to be followed by some comedy. The poem is called The Eighth and Thirteenth, coming from uh, the Eighth and Thirteenth Symphonies of Shostakovich. Uh, Shostakovich's Eighth is the Leningrad Symphony, um, written in memory of the siege of Leningrad uh, 
during during which um, some three million people, what with one thing and another, died. Um, it is, as many of you know, a wrenching piece of heartbreaking music. It was performed once in Stalin's lifetime. Um, Stalin hated it, uh, said, you know, it wasn't upbeat. Shostakovich's 13th is the Babi Yar Symphony, composed after Yevtushenko's poem. On the, on the massacre of the Jews of Kiev. One of the, one of the many things I admire about Shostakovich is that he is, he is not only a genius, he is that kind of genius that Max was talking about, um, who is, who is able to cross boundaries and empathize not only with the suffering of his own people, the Russians, but as well with the sufferings of the despised Jews. Um, that's what God gives us the imagination for, to be able to do that. Um, the poem is interrupted twice by quotations from Shostakovich's great memoir, Testimony. The eighth and thirteenth. The eighth of Shostakovich Music about the worst horror history offers they played on public radio again last night. In solitude, I sipped my wine, I drank that somber symphony to the vile leaves. The composer draws out the minor thirds, the brass tumbles overhead like virgin logs felled from their forest, washing down river, and the river men its song. Like ravens who know when meat is in the offing, oboes form a ring, an avalanche of iron violins. At Leningrad, during the years of siege, between bombardment, hunger, and three sub-freezing winters, three million dead were born out of Christ's bloody side, like icy fetuses. For months, one could not bury them. The earth and they alike were adamant. You stacked the dead like sticks until maize mud, when, of course, there was pestilence. But the music continues. It has no other choice. Stalin hated the music and forbade it. Not patriotic, not Russian, not Soviet. But the music continues. It has no other choice. Peer in as far as you like. It continues exactly as bleak as now. The composer opens his notebook. Tyrants like to present themselves as patrons of the arts. That's a well-known fact. But tyrants understand nothing about art. Why? because tyranny is a perversion and a tyrant is a pervert. He is attracted by the chance to crush people, to mock them, stepping over corpses. And so, having satisfied his perverted desires, the man becomes a leader, and now the perversions continue because power has to be defended against madmen like yourself. 
for even if there are no such enemies, you have to invent them, because otherwise you can't flex your muscles completely. You can't oppress the people completely, making the blood spurt. And without that, what pleasure is there in power? Very little. The composer looks out the door of his dasha. It's April. He watches farm children at play. He forgets nothing. For the 13th, I slip its cassette into my car radio. They made Kiev's Jews undress after a march to the suburb, shot the hesitant quickly, battered some of the lame and screamed at everyone. Valises were taken, would not be needed, packed so abruptly, tied with such frayed rope. Soldiers next killed a few more. The living ones, penises of the men like string, breasts of the women bobbling as at athletics, were told to run through a copse to where, wet with saliva, the ravine opened her mouth. Marksmen shot the remainder then, there, by the tens of thousands, cleverly, so that bodies toppled in without lugging. An officer strode upon the dead, shot what stirred. How it would feel such uneasy footing, even wearing boots that caressed one's calves, leather and lamb's wool, the sole's thick rubber, such the music's patient inquiry. What then is the essence of reality, of the good? The mind's fuse sputters, the heart aborts, it smells like wet ashes, the hands lift to cover their eyes, only the music continues. We'll try for the first movement a full chorus, the immediate reverse of Beethoven, an axe between the shoulder blades of Herr Wagner. People knew about Babillard before Yevtushenko's poem, but they were silent. And when they read the poem, the silence was broken. Art destroys silence. I know that many will not agree with me and will point out other, more noble aims of art. They'll talk about beauty, grace, and other high qualities. But you won't catch me with that bait. I'm like Sobakevich in Dead Souls. You can sugarcoat a toad, and I still won't put it in my mouth. Most of my symphonies are tombstones said Shostakovich. All poets are Jews, said Tsvetava. The words, never again, clashing against the words, again and again. That music.
Now for something completely different. Um, this is from The Nakedness of the Fathers, a book of Midrash, um, and is um, a little piece which I'll read part of uh, from The Wisdom of Solomon. Solomon is one of my great heroes um, who, um, well, you know, for a number of reasons. He wrote, we are told, the Song of Songs as an ardent youth, um, Proverbs as a mature man, and Ecclesiastes as a cynical old man. It's a good track record. <laughs> as well, though his father was a warrior all his life, King David, um, Solomon, on the other hand, um, made treaties, not war. I like that. I like that in a man. Um, then he, he, he built the temple. And we have the text of the inaugurating prayer in which he asks God to protect his people. And in the course of this prayer says, Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. I'll just repeat that. You know. <laughs> Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. A line I would like to see engraved on the foreheads of all fundamentalists um, who believe that their little structures can contain the one. This is about Solomon and Sheba. It is their first meeting, the first day. They have bathed in cream and been rubbed with myrrh. They've been clothed in bright embroidered silks, sleek fur, sheer wool, fine cotton, leather more tender than butter. They have adorned themselves in golden and jeweled bracelets, necklaces, rings, nose rings, brooches. Belladonna causes their eyes to glow. His eyes are large and dark. He is famous for wisdom. She, too, is famous. Her eyes are deep and bright. He is graceful. She is more graceful, black and comely. Their ambassadors have been in conference, have drawn up papers, signed papers, sealed papers. The musicians play, the choristers sing, the guards stand at attention. The minister of protocol nods. Sheba rises. Sheba passes from the garden through cedar doors which close behind her. She walks toward him, lifting her skirts, thinking the palace floor is wet. But Solomon has made the floor mirrored. There are two of her. You have hairy legs, he says. Well, you know, I, di I didn't make this up. This, this is traditional midrash. This is the rabbis, not me, right? We all know this. Um, there are two. You have hairy legs, he says. Now, that's what the rabbis tell us, but they don't tell us her response, and I will tell you. <laughs> and you, O king, are growing prematurely bald, she replies. They say, he murmurs, that baldness is a sign of virility. Sheba smiles and lowers her false eyelashes as if abashed. O king, in my country they say a hard man is good to find. 
They trade insults mirthfully. They recline on a couch which has been covered in zebra skin for the occasion. They eat some grapes. They smoke some Lebanese hashish. A good thing this is a private audience. I couldn't get much higher, says Solomon. You think not, says Sheba. She takes off her blouse, and they discuss botany, one of her special topics. He oils and rubs her back while they discuss jurisprudence, a specialty of his. She rolls over. He pours oil in his palms. He begins massaging her feet, the triangular pink muscles of sole and heel, the arch, the plump toe cushions, and thin alleys between the toes, the crystal ankles. How beautiful are thy feet, O prince's daughter, he says. That's very charming, says the queen. It's mine, he says. The Song of Songs is Solomon's. I wrote it this morning in honor of your arrival. Very fine indeed, exclaims Sheba, who, as a practical woman, is extremely fond of erotic poetry, especially when addressed to herself. I hope you will give me a copy to take home, and please go on. He recites the Song of Songs, meanwhile continuing the massage of her legs, calves, knees, and so forth. A garden shut up, a fountain sealed, is my sister, my bride. His hand touches her crotch. What do you call this in your language, Solomon asks. King Solomon's minds. <laughs> Sheba replies demurely, she is playing with his interesting circumcised penis about which she has several questions. And now, she says, I must ask you my riddle. She stretches over Solomon in a posture known throughout the Fertile Crescent as the Sheba position. O oh, king, I have examined your fascinating and unique holy books, perhaps with more attention than your own priests. They contain a secret knowledge can you tell me what that knowledge is? Solomon feels himself to be leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Concentration is difficult. He tickles Sheba's neck, which is like a tower. Alchemy? No. She licks his left earlobe. Numerology? Still less. She bites his right earlobe. Eschatology? He caresses her warm belly, which is like a stack of heaped wheat. Well, you know, he has three guesses. They're all wrong, um, but you have to buy the book. <laughs> On the second day, they have not left the couch. Solomon has told Sheba most of his 3,000 parables, each of which has a 1,005 interpretations. And Sheba has told Solomon a fair number of African pygmy jokes. They have eaten swan's legs, lark's wings, pigeon brain soup, and rolled breast of ostrich. They have drunk goat's milk, mango juice, and a great quantity of wine. Sheba has got Solomon to roll over and is examining the archipelago, archipelago of his vertebrae. Here are some of my country's proverbs in my own translation, says Sheba. And then there's a whole set of Sheba's proverbs, and I'll just give you a few of those from the beginning and end of the set. Some people don't have the brain God gave a pigeon. Dogma 
is a barking hyena caged and fed by terror. Paradox is the smile of truth. Does God reward the virtuous? Do frogs love flies? A confident man is unafraid of an intelligent woman. An intelligent woman is unafraid of a confident man. Are you nostalgic for matriarchy? A woman ruler can be crueler. Some say love is sanity and lust is lunacy. Some say the reverse. What do you say? The philosopher sits in a desert and sees that it is a garden. The mathematician holds a mirror to God. You don't need a weather vane to know which way the wind blows. Musicians are honored in heaven. Damn prisons, bless playgrounds. Some of those would be good for bumper stickers, remarks Solomon. <laughs> I hoped you would notice, Sheba says. This gives me an idea for something I might write in middle age, he says. You're so vain, she titters. And that, he says, gives me an idea for something I might write in old age. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Do you like that for an opening line? Okay, I'll just, I'll just close with one short poem um, from a book that's coming out next spring that has a lot of poems to God in it and some to my mother and some to the Shahina, uh, all addressed as a slippery you. This is called Psalm. I am not lyric anymore. I will not play the harp for your pleasure. I will not make a joyful noise to you, neither will I lament. For I know you drink lamentation too, like wine. So I dully repeat, you hurt me. I hate you. I pull my eyes away from the hills. I will not kill for you. I will never love you again unless you ask me. Thank you. Thank you, Alicia. Our final speaker for today is Jonathan Wilson. Educated in his native England and at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Jonathan Wilson wears many hats. In one, he's professor of English, Fletcher Professor of Rhetoric and Debate, and Chair of English at Tufts University. In another, he's the author of two books of literary criticism, including On Bellows Planet, and of dozens of reviews, interviews, essays, and articles in a range of venues, The New Yorker, New York Times Book Review, Boston Globe, The Times Literary Supplement, The Jewish Quarterly, The Forward, among others. But he's best known for his two works of fiction, Shum, a volume of short stories, and his novel, The Hiding Room. 
Jonathan Wilson builds his fictive worlds out of irrational choices, whether of sexual freedom or enthrallment, mordant unexpected consequences, ironic alignments, intimacy mistrusted and the intimacies of mistrust, and the saving grounding power of sensuality, whether erotic or sensory. His story, From Shanghai, was included in the Best American Short Stories series. He is now completing both a volume of stories and a novel set in Palestine in 1924. It's a pleasure to welcome my friend and former colleague, Jonathan Wilson. Thank you, Stari. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, about three years ago, I took my uh, oldest son, who was then 16, to Carnival in Kingston, Jamaica, which was probably a mistake. And uh, while I was there, I heard a song called Who Let the Dogs Out? Uh, and I uh, wrote a story about it and decided to call my new book of stories Who Let the Dogs Out? Stories of Men in Trouble. And then, of course, the song became a huge hit in America, and now I have to find a new title. So... Um, this story, um, and one that I may read following, uh, is from this book, Stories of Men in Trouble, and this one is called Mini Joe. It was 32 years since my father died, and I had a pain like hot curry in my left shoulder. But till Dr. De Silva's nurse directed me into his office, she told me to take my shirt off, and then she left me alone. I was there for about 20 minutes, so I started to use the doctor's phone. I dialed my wife. She wasn't home. I was about to call a couple of friends when the phone rang. Cardiology, I answered. But whoever it was hung up. I star 69 the caller, but no one responded. I made one more call to an old girlfriend, Alison Zawicki, whom I hadn't seen for 20 years. I'd found her number while fooling around on the internet search for a person and transferred it to a small piece of paper which I'd carried around in my wallet for a month. Allison's voice when I got through to chilly Edwardsville, Illinois, was, I thought, constricted by the smoky lassoes of time and nostalgia, but it turned out that she was eating a tangerine. Since 1976, when we had parted in anger, joy, and pouring rain outside the Hungarian pastry shop on New York's Amsterdam Avenue, Alison had married, raised three children, lost her mother to cancer, and then her husband on account of an affair that she had unwisely embarked upon with a colleague in marketing. In an impressive coincidence, her son's middle names were the same as my son's first names. How are you, she said. I told her. You wait 20 years and then you call me when you've got a punch in the heart and fire rushing down your arm? That's nice. It's only a pain in my shoulder, I corrected. But you're right. It's bad timing. I'm sorry to have intruded on your life. I won't phone again. Oh, yes, you will. This has got to be at least a two-parter. Of the lousy men that I've slept with over the years, you could be the first to die. If you don't pull through, maybe someone in your family can give me a buzz. I'll see what I can arrange, I replied. We talked for a while about a spring afternoon when we had cycled uptown to the cloisters. The sky was crystal blue and the wind over the Hudson blew hard toward the Palisades. On hills, our young legs hardly required the aid of gears. We kissed at a stoplight. At this point in our long-distance conversation, the unicorn of blissful memory laid its head in our laps. We stroked and caressed until it fell asleep. 
My life has been full of disappointment and regret, Alison concluded, and I'm sorry I stood you up that night at the 92nd Street Y. That must have been someone else, I replied. I've never been there. <laughs> Nurse Batil poked her head round the door. When she saw the receiver in my hand, she gave me a scathing look. The doctor will be with you shortly. It rang, I said, and put the phone down on Alison. For the next half hour, I read the pen stator, which had been left lying on the doctor's desk. I have a soft spot for Pennsylvania, which I have never visited. I have sometimes entertained the fantasy that I am walking home past the steel mills in Bethlehem after a hard-fought high school football game. There's a light drizzle. I'm covered in mud and on my way, like the young Tom Cruise in All the Right Moves, to visit a Catholic girlfriend who has long red hair. When I get to her place, I have a shower. She lies on the bed reading because, unlike myself, she has ambitions in the direction of college. When I come out of the shower, she puts the book down and we make love. It turned out that via the Penn Stater, you could order a life-size or mini cardboard cutout of the university's football coach, Joe Paterno. I didn't want to do this, but I wouldn't have minded the souvenir inkstand embossed with the college crest. There were two very boring articles in the magazine. One was about environmental engineering, and the other focused on a local muralist. I was reading Alumni Notes, Class of 57, when Dr. De Silva entered the room. It's an odd coincidence, he said, after perusing the results of my MRI and the minutes of my various stress tests. You were 15 when your father died, and now you have a 15-year-old son. But I'm not dying, I insisted. That remains to be seen, De Silva replied. I thought he was probably kidding. De Silva ran through a lot of questions of the sort everyone knows. Then he said, I have to ask you something. The answer won't go on your medical record. Have you ever used cocaine? Why, I replied, do you have some? <laughs> it was the wrong answer. According to your thallium stress test, your left anterior circumflex may be partially blocked, he continued after a swift elision of my ten snorts in 30 years. You need an angiogram, then possibly angioplasty. He spilled out a few more sentences, all of which featured the words heart disease. I didn't like this at all. By the end of 45 minutes, I had fallen down a dank well. At the bottom, there was nothing interesting to eat or drink, and two large containers of beta blockers and provicho. As a coda to our discussion, De Silva explained what he planned to do to me. The process begins, he said, when we freeze your groin area. No need to bother, I replied. I've been married for 17 years. <laughs> then we rub in some of that new ointment which restores hair but makes you impotent. De Silva didn't so much say this as imply it. I thought of the black waves that topped off mini Joe Paterno and complimented his Roy Orbison glasses. What about exercise, I asked. I had no intention of doing any, but I was trying to ingratiate myself after the cocaine revelations. After all, this man was going to be splashing my heart with dye, then running a plumber's line down the bloody streams where my life coursed. Do you own a treadmill? No. You could try walking the mall. I groaned. 30 circuits from Bloomingdale's round the fountain to Filene's is three miles. It's free and warm. You get the camaraderie of a crowd and the entertainment of various shop windows. I recommend it to all my patients who can't afford a home gymnasium. See Roman die, I said. 
I didn't go to the mall or home. Instead, I drove to O'Flanagan's bar and ordered a glass of blood-oxidizing red wine. The local paper was lying in a pool of beer further up the counter. I fished it out and turned to police beat. Item one, local flasher seen again at the library. Item two, four girls from the high school spend Saturday night in the hospital emergency room having their stomachs pumped. I had already heard about two. The girls had drunk a bottle of vodka as if it were Evian. Two slumped unconscious for three hours. The others were choking on vomit when the cops and ambulance crew arrived. I knew the mother of one of these girls. She was a hard-working person, full of love and care for her children. Her husband wasn't in the picture anymore. Every day she made school lunches and sent her offspring on the clamorous bus to struggle with algebra, read multicultural poetry, and learn a few words of Spanish. At night she made dinner, laundered her children's clothes, helped with the homework, then drove to rent videos and Nintendo games. Sometimes she shouted, warned, and threatened, sometimes hugged. Everybody agreed that having your stomach pump was something to be avoided, but youth would rather swig grain alcohol and try to make death drunk than stand lost in thought with a finger to its lips. I ordered another glass of wine. When I got home, there was a message from my cousin Risa on call answering. I've had it confirmed, she began, that Maya Chris, your grandfather on your father's side's nephew and husband to my mother's aunt, Razor Loskarovitz, was badly treated by your family on a station platform in London after the war. I'll be in and out all day. I called her at work. There was a high-tech crackling on the line, like ice on the River Neva pulling apart in spring. My cousin was an epidemiologist. She knew, for example, why women of African-American descent were more likely than any other group to undergo hip replacement surgery. Bad news for the royal line, I announced. I'm down for an angiogram. My cousin shrieked, but then she settled down to business. It was 1947. The smoke from a recently arrived steam train billowed and flattened under the great roof of Victoria Station. My grandfather, the well-known pigeon fancier, religious fanatic and specialist in unemployment, stood with his three sons in the penumbra cast by the black cylinder of the train. My father held the news chronicle under his arm. Headline, six-way spy was so shy. Down the platform, clutching the refugees' obligatory brown suitcase, came skinny Maya Chris. Because sometimes the eye sees less than the heart knows, my family apparently missed history's misery sliding down Maya's sloped shoulders, the camps, for example, of which they could not speak, and the DP camps, which, over a period of 18 months, had softened Maya's jowls in a direction away from skeletal. Well, well, after a week, Gramps sent him back. No room at the inn. Too many hungry mouths to feed. No work, no beans. Bye-bye, Cousin Chris. The moil of London is not for you, nor its moles for your children. Return to the displacement camp of your choice, and here's five quid for a new suit and a decent meal on the boat. I don't believe a word of it, I replied when my cousin was through. In the first place, my grandfather never went anywhere in a collective. Second, he never had five pounds to his name, which is one of the reasons my grandmother kicked him out. And third, my father once saved a sparrow by splinting a matchstick to its broken leg. Is that the kind of man who would spurn a needy relative? Hitler was a vegetarian, my cousin replied.
I lay on the hospital bed while a nurse shaved my pubic hair to centerfold specifications, then popped me a few pills to make life seem easy and calm. It was 6.30 a.m. The winter sky was the color of a wild goose's belly. Beneath it, cinder forms in high blocks ordered the patient to look no further. The real prisons, said Albert Camus, are the hospitals, and the real hospitals are the prisons. My wife and her sister sat chatting at the foot of the bed. What do you think, my wife asked, plates or paper plates? It's a party, her sister Minna replied. You don't want to have to do a lot of clearing up afterwards. Was it party, she said, or wake? Could it be checkout time for yours truly, or was it the drugs listening? But why not move on and out? What was there in return to the quiet suburbs except a month of snow shoveling, the endless chauffeuring of children, and a slowly defrosting groin? On the other hand, my legacy was incomplete. On this day of potential, potential reckoning, I had offered a particularly weak and disappointing choice of last words to be remembered by. Can you bring up some toilet paper? <laughs> yes, I'm a bit scared. I know which parking lot. Can I have a Valium drip? I hate slippers. Dr. De Silva and his team were waiting for me in the operating theater. His assistant, Dr. Suhu, looked especially fetching in her gray scrub suit and matching mask. I wanted to ask her to dance, but my condom catheter got in the fantasy's way. Lights, camera, action. We were in hyperspace. My upper torso burned from the inside out. Oh, lack, I urged, suspend ton vol. These were the first words that I had uttered in French since completing the British equivalent of sixth grade. Time rested its aluminum heel on my chest, but didn't stump. Then it was over. Dr. De Silva leaned in and whispered close to my ear, May your children's arteries be as yours, yea, unto the tenth generation. Was this a blessing or a curse? <laughs> Dr. Suhu removed her mask. The thallium test was a false positive. It happens only 5% of the time and almost exclusively to women. My wife and Minna were waiting in recovery. I'm clean, I announced, giving a thumbs up sign from the supine position. We heard, my wife replied. You have the heart of a girl. <laughs> I lay back. The entire futile world that I was so happy to be a part of returned to me in the shape of a white globe and its ripcord flex. My wife squeezed my hand. I thought, on reflection, that my grandfather might have been kinder to his skinny nephew, Chris. Thank you. Thank all the speakers, readers. Thank you very much. We will take a half an hour and be back at 4.30.